You're listening to The Authenticity Show, Music Nerd Edition. Your hosts are Lonzo Luconi and myself, Oliver Altine. The topic today is music teaching. Now, Lonzo and I are both music teachers, and apparently we have a lot to say about this. So let's get going. Hey, Lonzo. What's up, Oliver? Here we are again. Here we are again. Authenticity Show, another music nerd edition. Yeah, isn't it awesome? It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. So what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we're nerding out about music education. Ah, because you and I are both music educators. We are. So let me is is this your primary source of income, being a music teacher? At the moment, yes. Yeah, me too. And uh, I love it. I love teaching and I love to, you know, see my little ones grow and see how they're developing, you know, as people and as musicians. So what what are what are the ages of your students? My youngest student is six. Okay, six. I don't typically teach that young, but yeah. you know he's a cool little guy, so nice. I made an exception, <laughs> and you know all the way to adults. Yeah. But I would say the average age would be around twelve, between twelve to fourteen. Yeah, that sounds about uh, the same as me. Yeah. I usually say I go as as young as six, but I say the parents have to be, you know. Definitely involved at that age. Oh, yeah. I used to have some adult students, but, you know, they're kind of difficult with their schedules and, yeah, and exactly. they're practicing and, and, yeah. Adults have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't have time to they, practice. They have to adult. Yeah. So do you have a, a general guideline for how much you expect your students to practice? I usually tell them that I don't care Ooh. how much they practice. Wow, you're a nice teacher. I don't care. <laughs> However, I do care that they bring the assignment completed. Oh, okay. So you give them an assignment sheet every week? Or? Right. So, yeah. no, we, well, we, we write down what the goals are mm-hmm. for each week, right? And this is what they have to get done. And sometimes they even uh, set that themselves. Okay. I ask them, so how much do you think you can do for next week? Mm-hmm. And just make them commit to that. And then they will quickly learn like, oh, this was too much. Right. Or, wow, I could have done a lot more. Ah, so you're teaching them to manage their own schedules in that way. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, it seems very young. My six-year-old, I don't, I, 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 what I do with, with him is I write it down in steps. Mm-hmm. This is the first step, this is the second step, you know, it's like one through six. And they have to go one through six every day. So that sort of conditions them to, you know, go through a routine of right. practice. Yeah, yeah. I do something um, similar. I have five on my practice sheets, but I usually start out with scales as the first thing. Yeah. And then the the most recent or the newest song or whatever they're working on, and they work towards the more familiar stuff that, mm. that or the easier stuff, however it works out being. Yeah, and you know, you know I, I I use that approach, but I, I make it so that it's adaptable to the different personalities because you know some kids respond better to technical exercises than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, some kids just want to start playing right away. Right. Uh, so, but when they're that young, you can influence that more right you know yeah you know because when they're older they're they get they're stubborn a little bit (laughs) yeah true because young kids are just used to learning new stuff i mean they have homework for school they're way more curious it's just one more thing they have to do every day yeah so uh and you know we make it a lot of fun uh you know for me it's like the number one thing that i want to want them to get used to is self-awareness of their body you know how their body feels their breath their muscles yeah. Uh, all that so that, you know, eventually they can uh, learn to do this on their own. Right. You know, I always tell all of my students' parents 
that my job here is to teach my students everything I know as quick as they can so they don't need me anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I have yeah. a pretty similar philosophy. Yeah. So I tell them, yeah, I know it's bad business, but it's my my philosophy uh, because it would be really a failure if you take you know lessons for ten years and then on the eleventh year you didn't take lessons and you forget everything, then it's, right. it's just a waste of time, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want them to become independent. Yeah. And what better way to become independent than being self-aware of what you're doing? Absolutely. Um. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is mm-hmm. this is something that I go back and forth on and I've changed a lot in my uh, philosophy on this over the years of teaching is how how much do you tailor your lessons to the individual student and how much do you have like a basic program that all your students go through? Ah, that's a great question because I I personalize everything as much as possible. But there are some underlining structures that I do implement on everybody in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. For example, things like um, accountability. That's part of the program. That sounds nice. And do the parents appreciate this? As a parent myself, that sounds good to me, you know? Um, some, most of them understand it. And it's, it's pretty good because then they support you more. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, some don't get it or some don't care. Uh, a lot of them, it's just, you know... A, babysitting they drop the kids off and go shopping exactly or or, yeah Yeah, uh, so yeah those are the most frustrating ones yeah i have to admit i'm guilty of that as a parent sometimes where i just drop the kid off and i've got stuff to do and it's like i'll just be back at the end of the lesson right but (laughs) then again it's the level of commitment should also be proportional to the level of expectations that you have Right. right, and yeah. like you can't expect to do that, and then has the expectations of becoming right, a, like a very proficient, yeah, uh, musician go, yeah. in this case. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, for me, I used to treat every student as an individual. I mean, obviously, every student is an individual, but more and more, I've I've developed more of a program that I want all my students to go through, like mm-hmm. more of a structured thing. Because I was thinking about, you know, if a student takes lessons from me for let's say two years. And then they go out into the world and they tell people, oh, yeah, I took lessons with Oliver Altine for two years. There's certain things I want them to be able to do, you know, mm-hmm. like I would be, I guess, a little embarrassed if a student studied with me for a long time and like couldn't do what I consider to be fundamental stuff, you know, right? like basic scales, basic chords, you know, things like that. So I've got this multi kind of tiered structural system now that all the students basically go through. It's like my little program that I have. Right, right. So I think you're talking more about structure rather than actual approach, you know, because, Mm -hmm. yeah, you, of course, we have to teach scales. We have to teach theory. We have to teach sight reading. We have to teach, you know, how to practice better, how to learn faster, technique, all that stuff. Uh, But for me, it's in the how. You know, if someone has... Uh, you know, struggling with with a specific scale, then you know we play fun games, we do different things. If they're having trouble with the with the fingering in the particular scale, I have them like close their eyes and just say the fingers out loud, right? So they can, you know, yeah. uh, Same, visualize saying stuff out loud while you play is a powerful. It technique. is. Oh my god! It's and like it's so much can be solved by just saying it out loud while you do it. Exactly, <laughs> and <laughs> funny enough, that's where. A lot of the times I find the most resistance right, yeah. from the students. They're like quiet, this, they don't want to count, they don't yeah. want to talk. They or they'll count like this, okay, one, two, and it just dies out. They're like, ah, you messed right. up right when you stopped counting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That happens all the time, yeah. all the time. 
and then they realize it too and they still don't count it's really funny to to watch yeah well um, everyone's got their things they're like stumbling blocks or there's things that that are just that they're stubborn about or whatever yeah you know? i've got mine i know for sure I, yeah we all do do you let your students choose what songs or pieces the they're playing or do you pick them for them um it depends uh when they don't have a lot of experience you have to help them more part of the you know lesson plan is a lot of listening to music in fact some of my more advanced students mm-hmm. i ask them to keep a journal of the music that they listen to Ooh, throughout the week that's a great idea oh i want to use that um i ask them to have like a just a regular notebook and have it so that both pages you know are, are side by side right. so don't use like the very very first pages have them side by side and then on the left side it's going to be the name of the composer and they're going to write you know just uh, very general facts about their lives who they were where they're from you know what style mm-hmm. and then just make a list of famous pieces that they wrote or just like in general for example you would say bach wrote preludes and fugues and he wrote right. you know right. two part inventions three part inventions and then on the right side you would write down the actual pieces that you heard throughout right. the week okay. yeah and i often ask them to do it with a score if they can. Oh, that's so, really hard, though. I I, <laughs> I admit. But so you mean listen to the music while looking at while the looking at the music. score? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's. I mean, awesome. there's not a better way to you know really pay attention to everything. Yeah. So they would list it, and then they would they I ask them to rate it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Just from one to ten per- and personal and taste. Personal taste one yeah. to ten, one to five, however they want it. They want to rate it. That does a lot of things. First of all, is that or gives them this routine of constantly listen to music. Uh, and then something that's incredibly gratifying about this is how much I learn as a teacher about their musical taste. And then they, it's it's cool to see how then they can be confident enough so that they know what they like and they can choose their own piece or their own pieces. Wow, that's cool. I'm, I'm gonna start using some of that. Although. You know, as most of my students are not classical students as a guitar teacher. You so can still do something, a version not, of that, yeah. Right, but there's not always, like, the score to follow along with. But, yeah. I would say 99% don't do it with the score. Okay, right. Anyway, well, <laughs> I suggest it, of course. Right, yeah. And it would be ideal. And I tell them, if you find it, and I give them all the resources, you know, imslp.org, or, right. or, or if it's, you know, harder to get, then I'll... Yeah. I'll find it somehow. Yeah, and for those of you listening who don't know, imslp.org is a fantastic resource for classical music scores. Yes. Pretty much anything you want. Anything you want that's in the public domain yeah. is there. Multiple versions, parts, yeah. you know, full scores. It's like a Wikipedia. It works very similar to Wikipedia, mm-hmm. where it's just made of contributors. So I can scan a specific, you know, edition of of a score and then it'll just be there so cool (laughs) yeah highly recommended let's talk about the difference between being a musician as a performer and as a teacher Mm -hmm. because Playing music is a very different skill from teaching music. Right. You know, and I don't know about you, but my musical training, I'm I'm classically trained. I went to Cal State Fullerton. 
but I didn't really learn how to teach, except for the fact that I had lessons. So if I was watching my teachers, I was mm-hmm. getting an example of how to teach, you know, if I right. looked at it from that perspective. But there wasn't a lot about, like, you know, the actual skills of teaching, organizing mm-hmm. materials and presenting things. So I basically just figured it out when I started doing it. I don't know. Was that your experience as well? Um, at the beginning, yes. Um, I've always been fascinated by the whole process of learning and teaching. I was probably 16 when I started really noticing what my teachers were doing mm-hmm. with me. And then I would observe them with other students and then how would they would run the, you know, the school right. and you know, the recitals and all these like policies and things that they had that were yeah. sometimes really extreme. Because <laughs> there's different skills like for younger students and older students and students who are more self-motivated or less motivated students. You really have to have a wide variety of mm-hmm. kind of a bag of tricks as a teacher to keep your student interested and you know, right. challenged. Right. And for me, it was very... Um, intuitive at -hmm. the beginning since i started really paying attention then i started applying it myself uh i started teaching when i was 17 okay that's pretty young yeah very young uh and i loved it since you know day one Mm -hmm. i knew this was going to be part of my life so what did you love about it well i like the connection and sort of like that that trust that you know both parts the student and the teacher put into each other Mm -hmm. to do something great Right, right. So it's almost like a team. Yeah, it's exactly. Like we're we're a team, and we're gonna make things amazing. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I use the word "we" a lot when I talk. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's it's a team. What did we learn this week? What did we do last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, uh, actually, most in most cases, I include the parents in that, right. that if, if part of the kid, team yeah. because you know their support yeah. is is essential to, to it, the growth. It really is. It really is. It, it's it's amazing the difference that it can make mm-hmm. for supportive parents. So, yeah, I started teaching when I was 17, and since then, I know I read books, and, you know, my major was in performance and pedagogy. Oh, wow, okay. So, so you actually were undergrad, yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah, I was, uh, but, but mostly by myself. I would say, like, yeah, I took, you know, the courses in college, and I learned a few good things, but when it comes to teaching, nothing teaches you better to teach than to teach. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Than to do it ultimately if you want to be like a good teacher an effective teacher you have to be amazing in uh social skills and you have to be an excellent communicator right and you have to figure out how that particular student is going to receive that exactly and your social skills have to be really really good so you right you know you can you, you know how to how to influence them and how to turn them on to what you're talking about yeah because yeah such a different skill it's like its own art form because i've had great amazing teachers that were not particularly amazing performers but they really knew how to teach and i've also had lessons from amazing performers that were just terrible teachers mm-hmm. i remember one time i was at cal state fortin and we had a visiting guitar master do a, a master class you know a concert and a master class um and she did her concert on i think it was friday night and it was just like incredible like virtuosic all over the place and then the next day was the master class she couldn't teach. I think part she was so young. I'm not going to mm. say um, her name, but I think this person was so talented and things came so easy to her. She didn't have to struggle with anything. She was like an 18-year-old virtuoso, you know? And so she didn't know what it was like to uh, have a hard time with something. So basically her advice to me was just play it better. 
<laughs> what she told me. I just just play it better is what she said. Wow. So great. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, for people that, uh, you know, like music comes easy, sometimes it's very hard for them to break it down to the steps required to achieve that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's also diff- difficult for them to go through the steps because yeah. they, they, you know, they don't go through steps one, two, three, four, five, six. They go one, six. Right, exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, like, it's just that easy. Right, because as a teacher... So they can't see it in other people, right? They, they, yeah. they think that everybody can, can do it, and, and, and that's not the case. So as a teacher, um, like when I have a student that's having a hard time with something, we stop and we break it down. Oh, let's, let's you know, break this right. into first this, then this, and we practice one step at a time, and then eventually you put them together. You have to build it up. Yeah, and right? uh, yeah. you know, as as you know, and good teachers know how to separate themselves from the process that the student is going to, through, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, in this case, and you were saying the master class, this person, uh, of course, very young, not probably not very experienced, but they couldn't conceive probably that someone that was having difficulty with something that they found very easy right yeah she just, right so she couldn't like you know step outside of herself right and see the problem through the other person's you know eyes and break it down with your knowledge break it down so they can solve the problem yeah exactly so it's it's a multi-step process that not everyone can do it and right. not everyone some people can do it but they don't have the patience for it either Another thing I've noticed about teachers is that sometimes they end up teaching things that they maybe don't intend um, non-verbally. Like if a student is imitating them or just kind of spends a lot of time in their presence, they pick up habits, they pick up kind of ways of being. And the teacher, you're always teaching kind of whether you realize it or not. So I went to Cal State Fullerton and when I was there, both of the main guitar teachers um, had had hand uh, injuries, right mm-hmm. hand injuries, which is actually fairly common in the classical guitar world because the right hand right. motion is very repetitive. Um, and a lot of their students ended up developing these hand injuries too, even though from the teacher's perspective, I think they thought they were particularly well suited to teach because they could help their students avoid the same mistakes they had made that had mm-hmm. led to their hand injuries. But still, a lot of their students, including me actually, ended up with very similar right-hand injuries that they had had. And I always wondered about that. I guess it's kind of just like a a nonverbal type of communication. Somehow they transmit their style or their approach to the instrument, and it, and it leads to some similar results. Yeah, you know, that's, that's very interesting because um, music, like teaching music is a very hands-on activity. Right. It's very hard to teach music just by telling someone what to do right yeah right um maybe when when the students are advanced enough and they've you know reached a certain level then the role is as a teacher is a little bit different is more of an advisor or right you know someone to discuss ideas and yeah a coach maybe a coach but in the earlier stages it's fully hands-on you have to be able to play and that's going to to influence you are as a teacher the number one example Mm -hmm. right of how things should be done. Right. You know, in their eyes, this is the correct way to do it. Right. And that's a big responsibility. Yeah. Being a performer and being a teacher are two different things, but it's very important as teachers to keep practicing and to keep their, you know, chops because when you're demonstrating, 
Right. Or yeah. when you're performing yourself, like you said, you're teaching even if you're not intending to teach in that moment, right? Right. Because yeah, you you exactly. become a role model for your students. Yeah. Um, and some of them pick up in a lot of things that, or pick up on a lot of things that uh, you might be doing unconsciously, and they pick them up unconsciously as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That 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 was that was my point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, I think that you know, keeping your your skills as sharp as possible. I know that right. for some teachers is not as easy because you know most of the time is committed to to their students and the little energy that they have left at the end of the day. You know, most people don't want to use it on <laughs> yeah playing I, their instrument. I, I have I have some students that I um, need to practice for or like prepare more for. You know, if they're more advanced students, but those are the students that I love. The more advanced students, I mean, I love all my students, but it's nice to have an advanced student. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it it you know you can really get into stuff. You you can get you know go deep into stuff and and um, in my case, for example, when I have to play when one of my students is playing a concerto and I have to accompany them. Okay. And I also have to practice my part. Yeah, for sure. And so you would play like an orchestra reduction on right a, on a the, like piano. on a second piano, correct? Yeah. Um, so I, I have to not only know the music, but I have to be know it well enough so I can also hear what they're doing. Yeah. So I can coach them at the same time as I'm playing. Right, and also you're talking about the art of the accompanist. Which is, oh yeah, you know, which is a whole other skill, right? That there you go. Not, I feel like accompanists are kind of like the unsung heroes of the music world, right? They are absolute heroes, and there should be statues. Because <laughs> <laughs> so often the accompanist accompanies part in is every more music school in the world, right? The accompanist part is often more difficult, and they get no credit. Not only that is the the ability that they that they develop, the listening ability that they develop is amazing. Right. It's not only about you know playing what they have in front of them. It's about interacting with the soloist. Right. So they have to be listening to every single nuance that, you know, is coming from, yeah. the, from the soloist. You have to follow their rhythm. If follow their rhythm if, if, they, if they got any. If they end up in a different spot or whatever, you have to be there with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, accompanying non-professional musicians is probably one of the hardest jobs. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're accompanying a professional and they can play clean, and then it's, it's you know, fairly easy. But Right. You know, when you're accompanying like a children's choir or, you know, right. like a beginner violinist. Yeah. Man, those those are challenging. Yeah. Never know what can happen. Yeah. One thing I'm sure you have your students do is at least a, a certain amount every week, maybe a sight reading. Oh yeah, every a, day, every day, day yeah. yeah, every day. Yeah, sight reading is man. Some kids get it and some kids don't. It's it's one of those skills. It's 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 a pretty advanced skill. There's it's a extremely lot of hard. It's ex- it's it's very complex. Uh, but I would say it's probably the most valuable one that you can learn. It's even so if, valuable. It's the gateway to the repertoire. I mean, if you can sight read, you can look at a piece of music and hear it in your head. Uh, right. And, and and it's way more practical. Even if, even if you're not a professional musician or you don't go up in a professional route, mm-hmm. if you have a good sight reading, you can play anything you want. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's nothing more powerful than that, just being able to read anything. Yeah. Like how cool is that? So yeah, one of my goals for my students is to be able to open up a book of basic, you know, guitar songs, guitar music, whatever it is, and just look at it and play it. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated, 
But right. if it's just like simple, you should be able to open up a book and play it. You know, one of the things I teach with sight reading is that in a certain way, it's the art of knowing what you can ignore on the page. Because if you open up a book mm-hmm. of guitar songs, usually there's like the piano music and the guitar chord shapes. You know, most people have seen this and they've got the lyrics and stuff. Most of that information you could ignore. You know, you need to know what chord for how long. Yeah. If you're just strumming guitar chords. Prioritizing you, instantly. Instant yeah, priori- prioritization. Ex- and then you can build up from there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah. the more comfortable you get, then you can challenge yourself to, you know, include one more element and then one more element after that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but and there's there's some instruments that are easier than others when it comes to sight reading too. Mm-hmm. You know, like polyphonic instruments. Right. Like, like uh, as a pianist, you're responsible for more notes. The, and stuff like yeah. That for so sight reading for the piano is 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 you know quite complicated. Right. Uh, because you have, you know, you're reading in two different clefs at the same time. Uh, it's yeah. just basically like reading two languages at the same time and then having and translating it through your fingers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For the guitar also, guitar can get quite complicated. Yeah. When, when it's classical. When it's guitar, classical and sure, you have yeah. all these like, you know, voices and harmonies yeah. that can. Well, what makes the guitar a little bit more complicated than the piano, maybe it just in a, in a certain way, is that there are more, there's more than one way to play any given note. Right, right. There's at least three, you have usually. To, you have to think about the positions, right? And Yeah. Uh, well, there's tricks. Like we, on, in guitar, when you're sight reading, you read from the top note down because the mm-hmm. highest note is going to determine you know, what fret you need to slide up to and things like that. There's, okay. there's tricks. You know. Well, how long have you been teaching? I've been teaching more or less um, solid for about 15 years now. 15 years? Yeah, for about 15 years. Okay. Well, that's quite a bit. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting pretty good at it. You know, I used to think I was great. And then the, I always have these moments where I look back and I, I think, well, I'm a good teacher now, but boy, I wasn't so good back then, but I'm good mm. now. And then like <laughs> five years from there, I'll look back on the same point and say, boy, I thought I was great, but now I'm a good teacher. So, you know, I, I think I'm a good teacher, but I'm always improving. At least you're confident enough in the present moment. And I think that that uh, is important that a student feels that, you know, mm-hmm. that their teacher is secure about what they're saying. Yeah, for sure. I think that's 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 a must. Yeah, I think so. One of the things I like to do if, if a student brings in a song that they want to learn, which I encourage them to do. Um, oh, I want to learn this one song. And I'll, OK, let's listen to it. Let's figure it out. And I like to actually figure it out in front of them. Yeah. I'll listen and I'll be like, okay, here's this chord or this chord and here's what I came up with. Let's play this. And I want them to watch me because that's something I want them to be able to do, you know? Right, right. Yeah, that's, I mean, lead by example. Right. And Um, then sometimes I'll ask them, so how how do you think I figured that out? How did I know what that chord was? How did I know what fret he was, you know, he, he asked these leading questions to get them thinking about, hmm, what would it be like if I could do that? And then, oh, maybe I can do that. Yeah, it's you know, it gives the students a uh, a peek at what professionals do and how they figure it out, and maybe mm-hmm. it'll motivate them to maybe one day they can do it that way or even better. Right, and it also I, I hope motivates them to learn a little bit more about music theory, because if you understand the theory, it's a lot easier to to wrap your head around things and oh, figure yeah. out what's going on. Things you know? should just make sense. It's not a bunch of random notes. They're, you know, yeah. there's obvious things you know, make sense. Yeah. That's So in these in these 15 years of teaching, has it made you a, a better musician? Yes, absolutely. Um 
Mastery, I think, is basically mastery of fundamentals. So yeah, I mean, the main thing is just I got to know my stuff so I can teach it. But then mm -hmm. also, you know, just learning how to explain things. If you can explain something, then you understand it. You might think you understand something, but if you can't really explain it in a sim simple way, then maybe you don't understand it as well as you thought you did. So yeah, I, I feel like... I've just become right. so much of a better musician from being a oh, teacher. No, and I, I, I totally agree with what you said. And I would even go a step further and, and say that you don't really know it until you can teach it to different types of people. Hmm. Right? Okay, yeah. Because like maybe that. you can explain it really well to you know a specific type of personality, but then you have another like more distracted student or mm -hmm. maybe one that's not very interested. How do you teach it to that person? Yeah, you can't teach the same yeah. way. You have to adapt. Right, yeah. And uh, If you only know it from one angle, then maybe you don't know it as well. Exactly. So it's just precisely that. For me, it's been amazing how how it has opened all the different angles and possibilities of knowing something in music, right? There's many ways of achieving the same result, mm -hmm. right? And like for me, especially as a younger teacher, because I was just observing the one example that I had was my, my teacher. So I, I thought that was the only way to teach. But then as I got older and I got to, you know, experience different teachers and master classes and uh, traveling and then teaching different kids myself and different people in different cultures and different languages. Mm, oh, yeah, because you're a multilingual Right, teacher, so yeah. in, it's teaching in Spanish and in English and, right, and, and also the cultural difference on the, you know, the things that you can say... And you can't say depending where you are or who you're teaching. Interesting. Right? So can you think of an example of something that you could say like in Spanish that you wouldn't say in English? That would be more like cultural. Mm -hmm. uh, here in the, in the U.S., people tend to be way more sensitive about what you say. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whereas in Costa Rica, you can just really speak your mind. And it, most of the time, it'll be like well-received. Okay. And you can actually even like joke around with it. You know, it's a little bit more relaxed in that way. So you don't have to sugarcoat it as much? No. Huh. That sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, you know, my teachers were Russian, are, or they still are, but right. they're not my teachers anymore. <laughs> if they're uh, Russian, you should tell them to slow down, man. Use a metronome. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but then, um, so, I, so I grew up in, uh, in a Russian music school basically right in costa rica, in costa rica right? yeah right. Right. uh so they are very intense and very strict and very particular about their methods mm -hmm. like there's only that one way to do it that's the right way the russian way mm -hmm. but as you gain more experience you also start questioning things for yourself sometimes you find yourself you know playing a specific passage of a piece in a certain way and you're like wait hold on a second now that you know i have all these different perspectives, then I can use this also to approach this passage, not necessarily just the Russian way, but I can try it many different ways, and it ultimately is going to be my way. Yeah. So you can figure out who you are as a musician. Exactly. Find, you're talking about finding your voice, I think, right? Exactly. And exactly, finding your voice. And also being able to challenge then your students, because you also want them to find their own voice. And it's impossible to do that without being challenged. Right. And one of you know one of the things that I do very often in in my lessons is ask why. Why did you do this the way that you did it? 
Or I would ask, why do you think the composer wrote it this way? Right. Or the editor, right? Or why do you think there's an F sharp there instead of an F natural? Right, yeah. These are good questions. Right, so like always the why, because it gets them, you know, thinking like, oh, I don't, it's, it's, it's no longer this dynamic of, you know, monkey see, monkey do kind of thing. Yeah. You know, but it's more like, oh, shoot, now I have to think. <laughs> I, I do yeah. something very similar. Like if there's a if, if there's a chord that doesn't belong in the mm -hmm. key, I say, why did he put that chord there? Mm. Well, what's that chord doing there? That's not in the key of G or whatever yeah. key we're in, you know. And you know, there's usually there's what I consider to be a right answer, but it's yeah, nice yeah. to think about it. And you know? sometimes I approach it like very, in a very curious way, you know. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes I find myself being a little bit sarcastic. <laughs> But other times I'm just genuinely curious and be like, oh, that's very interesting. Show me what you did there and why, how come you decided to do that way? How come you decided to use those fingers instead of, you know, the standard fingering and putting them in a path where they can discover it themselves right. and not you just telling them like, oh, that's the wrong fingering. You should blah, yeah. blah, blah, right? Okay, do you have any pet peeves as a teacher? Anything that just bothers the hell out of you? Parents. Oh, parents. <laughs> Number one, uh, parents can be the uh, biggest obstacle. Oh, obstacle, how so? Committing to learning something requires discipline, a good environment, a healthy mindset, healthy habits, good example. So... The dynamics at home play a huge role. The main problem comes when they ask them to practice, to follow the teacher's assignments or instructions. And they say it, but they don't act as if it's important. Yeah. You know? So we get put into like a lower priority. Right. In terms of following instructions, but not in terms of expectations. I see. So what happens is then the student is not advancing, the teacher gets frustrated, the parent gets frustrated, and mm -hmm. you know nobody really knows why. Well, it's because the environment at home is not encouraging that. Yeah, I, sometimes parents don't set a very good example, like, you do your work while I sit here and play a game on my phone or something. The parents will do that, you know. But yeah, I mean, with your student, you, you're in charge of the lesson when they're there, but you can't control what happens at home. Exactly. You can't control week, what so happens at home and you can't control also how they show up at your lesson. Right. In, you know, especially in their mindset. Right. And a lot of the times they show up to your lesson already thinking that this is not that important anyways. Right. Because in, in the household is not that important anyways. But if at home, it's the, you know, the lessons are put at a very high priority and very high value, then you can see that right away. Right, yeah. I, um, I, I do feel like music lessons sometimes are like lower priority than like soccer or whatever other extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. For some reason, music lessons seem to be at the bottom of the list for a lot of parents. Like my soccer practice changed, so I can't come to a music lesson. It's like, well... Why, why wasn't it the other way around? You know, why yeah, is yeah. music more I, That priority? happens all the time. Know. That happens all the time. And then they wonder why their kid is not improving, you know. And it's uh, it's frustrating to see as a teacher 
because you can't really tell them to their face most of the time. Like, well, no, the problem is you. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, sometimes you can say, you know, it would help a lot if you could be more involved, or right, or or sometimes ask the parent, you know, how much is he practicing? And sometimes they'll say, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I do that a lot, and most of the responses that I get are uh, things like. Well, I told him to practice, and I think he right. did. <laughs> I right? get that all the time, too. I told him to practice. I did my job. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. you know, like I asked him if he did everything, and, and he said yes, or she said yes. And then, yeah. but then, you know, in front, everybody there in the room, I say, well, did you? Like, to the student, did you have the integrity to tell the truth? And the parent, did you, are you even aware of what's going on here? Right. You know, did you even, did you read the notebook where I wrote down the instructions or were you yeah. hearing the lesson? Yeah. Uh, I always like it when the parents sit in the lesson. I like know? it too. Unless the kid is, you know, when they get to be like 16 or, or you know, yeah, older yeah. than five well, or If whatever, they're but. mature, then, and there's, you know, I've had students that even at 10 years old, they don't need their parents there. Yeah. But, but I those, feel that's like the, a rare case. The parents should know, you know, at least what, what the expectations are, what they're supposed to be working on. You know? Right. And it's also good to understand what the teacher is trying to do and understand the teacher himself like, or herself, what their priorities are and what their goals are with the students. Because mm -hmm. it's also very important to know for parents if that is the right teacher for your kid. Right. There's yeah. a you know, compatibility element that's incredibly important. If there's, no, if there's no bond there, if there's no connection, man, teaching is a two-way street. Right, yeah. You can't just like spit out a bunch of information. doesn't matter how valuable they, it is. Uh, the student is only going to open up if there's a bond there, if, they're, yeah, if they feel like they're being cared for. Yeah, and it's such a great feeling when a student is doing well and, you know, everything's going well. It just feels so great. Yeah, you know? it just flows, you know, and it feels like, you're, you know, you guys can talk about anything Yeah, and, it, and you can nerd out about music and... Yeah. Uh, because every once in a while, you know, I'll have a lesson that's just fantastic and I'll just walk out of that teaching studio feeling just just so great. You yeah. Know, it's, it's hard to describe to someone who isn't a teacher how great it feels when you have a student. Yeah, and especially really when the student, it. you know, also walks out walks out of the, there yeah. with, with a smile on their face and all excited. Yeah, that's the best right there. Have you had students that come to you with very specific goals or is it mostly just, you know, people that want to learn music because it's fun like what is what is generally the motivation for your students to mm. learn most of my students are between the ages of let's say 10 and 14 and i think their motivations are not necessarily clear to them they just think it's cool or want to want to want to do it because they have this idea that it'll it'll be cool i think it's just it's a it'll make them mm. make them into i don't i don't know if that's the only reason but that seems to be one of the main reasons. Is there ever some sort of pressure from the parents? Oh, yeah, sometimes, especially at a younger age. Mm. And sometimes the student doesn't want to be there, but, you know. Right. And then every once in a while, I'll get an adult that says, I, I really want to learn the solo for Hotel California or something like that, yeah. you know. And I was like, all right, well, we can work up to that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so how, do you, how do you then, you know, once you sort of know their motivation, how do you prepare them? What kind of training, is there a different training that you uh, set up for them depending on what they want to do? Yeah, sometimes. Like, like sometimes it'll be like a school project or if it's like a homeschool thing, they'll, they'll have like, they'll be training for some specific thing. 
Uh, you know, it just depends on what they want to do. Usually they still have to learn basic things like scales and chords and stuff mm. too. So it's I kind of fit them into the program, but just maybe get a little specialized with them if they have a certain song they want to learn or a certain like thing they're preparing for. But I imagine you probably have more variety as far as that with your with your teaching than I do. Um, yeah, it used to be even more so a few years back. Um, most of my students now are generally more in a, like a more competitive track. Okay, like preparing for a competition. Preparing for, or you like know, that. a lot of performances and competitions and, okay, yeah, that, and that, state tests and stuff pressure, like that. The high-pressure classical world. A little bit, it. yeah, it's, it's, it's faster-paced, a little bit more you know, pressure. Uh, it requires a lot of, of fine-tuning and polishing. And for that high-level training, routine is essential routine, okay. and discipline and a strong character. Strong uh, character. Can you unpack that a little bit? What yeah, is, so a strong mean? character basically is, first of all, the perseverance, mm -hmm. the patience, having that openness of receiving feedback, and the self-initiative to want, wanting to improve by yourself. Right. You know, so this is like a, a combination of all those elements. Yeah. Uh, and I think that last one that I said is incredibly important. You know, you just have to want to get better. Right. You have to want it, right. You have to want it exactly. So, yeah. and you have to not be too thin-skinned. Like you have to be able to take criticism, take criticism, take feedback, uh, and take losses when they are. I mean, if 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 you're gonna go to a competition, you have to be okay with the fact that you might lose. One thing that I tell my students all the time is, if you go to a competition, go to the competition and do your best and enjoy it, and that's it. That's the biggest reward. I don't care what you get. If you get first, second, if you don't get anything, honorable mention, whatever. Right. I really, truly don't care as long as you had a positive experience and you uh, improved well beyond your limitations. Right. I think and that's the, the great advantage of competitions, not so much the results. Interesting. Yeah, I don't train my students really for competition so much, but we prepare for student recitals and mm -hmm. things like that. And the recital from a teacher's perspective, is great because it's a concrete reason to practice a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then the, the higher level of the competition, then the more rigorous the training gets. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very particular approach to music, you know. It's not, not for, like, just the amateur music lover, if you're really no. serious. I mean, that's a, it's like training for the Olympics or something. It's right? like training for the Olympics, exactly. So yeah. there's, you're trying to reduce the margin of error to the minimum possible. Right. Right. While still, you know, keeping, you know, a graceful poise and, and, yeah, and, and maybe expression. Maintaining a little bit of spontaneity too, of course. Right, you know, right. So. Just, you know, being, uh, just flowing really right. while keeping that level of precision and, and, yeah. and accuracy. Yeah. That's tricky because, you know, in, as an audience member, you can, you can tell when the performer is really enjoying themselves. Yes. And that, that's when it's really engaging, you know. Right. And I, I, you know, I often tell my students that inside that the whole process, they have to be developing also their own voice, like we were talking about earlier, or their own expression. Right. Because that's what the audience ultimately is going to like about you. The uh, personal touch that the performer right. can, can give it and not just, you know, play like a robot. You can still play perfect, 
Right. You know, just like you can speak very eloquently, but not say anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. At the piano festival that you run in Costa Rica, mm -hmm. is there a competition? There's a concerto competition, yes, yeah, with the orchestra and everything. Oh, so that's cool. Uh, very high level. Yeah. Very, very high level. Do they all play the same concerto at the no, competition? No, no. They, they, they choose the whatever they, they want? They choose the concerto, and there's a first round. It's mm. online, so they submit it online. Oh, I see. And we choose seven finalists to play one movement. Oh, but it's amazing cool. how sometimes young kids are performing at that level. Uh, I even had a student myself. He performed with the orchestra. He got second place in the oh, wow. nice. competition. You know, he was he was ten at the time. Ten years old. Wow. Ten, yeah. And then the kid that that played got first place was also ten Damn. in that category. Yeah, you know, playing Beethoven concerto, Haydn concerto. You know, uh, that's awesome. And then the older categories too. I mean, it's it's hard. I remember you know talking to the jury and being like, hey, it's, I know this is gonna be hard, but just try to give some like constructive and encouraging feedback, you know, because right, they write it down because mm -hmm. I want this to be a positive experience and okay. not be like right. an actual like, oh, I'm better than you kind of yeah. kind of vibe. So I think bottom line is understand what it takes to reach your goal. What I try to communicate with all my, you know, students and parents is it's very important to be clear about the roles that each individual plays in this team. Right, the teacher, student, the and teacher, parents. the student, and the parent. Yeah, that, that I like that. I like thinking about it as a team. It's a team. It's a team, and and it's got to be well defined. What are the roles of each? Ultimately, I think a good metaphor for being a teacher is being a gardener. Right, you plant seeds mm -hmm. and you water them. You do your best you can with everything. Some of them grow. Some of them don't. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. It know. is what it is. Yeah, it's best not to take it personally. <laughs> uh, no, no. Um, I, or I try to take the successes personally, but not the failures. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you want to you wanna feel happy, right? You want to yeah. feel like you're part of it. And, you know, if the flowers are not blooming, yeah, yeah. it's also a good, a, good, a good opportunity, you know, for ourselves to look inside and be like, well, I wonder what I need to be doing to spark this one, right? Right, yeah. I mean, this one needs the, a little extra. This stuff. one maybe that needs a different approach, or even sometimes, and this has happened uh, a few times to me. If it's not the right fit, knowing someone that could be the right fit for this person, so they can actually, right? They don't have to quit yeah. music. They can just go to someone else that might have a different skill set than you. Right. Their personalities could be more compatible with you know. Yeah, that's, that's good to to be aware of that stuff for sure. All right. Well, this was a good conversation. Yeah. I think I think I learned a little bit about teaching from talking to you about this. Yeah, me too. I yeah. like your idea of the listening notebook, taking notes and listening to, to music. That's a oh great yeah, idea. that that's I'm that's gonna, been yeah. Thank you for that. The the people that do it, you can tell right away after like the second week. I mean, I could talk for days yeah. <laughs> about the benefits of doing that. Okay. Well, thanks All again, right. Lanza. Thanks, Oliver. Until next time. Looking forward. You've been listening to the Authenticity Show Music Nerd Edition with your hosts, Lonzo Luconi and myself, Oliver Altine. The show is produced by myself, Oliver Altine. I also wrote the theme song, which you're listening to right now. And for this episode, the interstitial music was actually me playing classical guitar. I played some Bach, some Soar, and some Targa. 
Please remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. We're on Spotify. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, all the stuff, Instagram, Twitter. And our website is AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day. Thank you.